John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 550.MT1906, certificate number 19205. The Gray Album. We have put rock music into the omnibus. Yes. Even the Beatles, I yes. guess. Sure. Or, I, I don't know. What are the Beatles-related shows? One about their Lord of the Rings stuff. Right. I can't remember what else. All the most important stuff about the Beatles. We did That uh, they did not make a Lord of the Rings movie. That's the number one most important fact about uh-huh. them. Like many other guitar bands of the period, they did not make an adaptation of Lord of the Rings for Hollywood. Yeah, which seems like a, um, like an oversight, given <laughs> that all of Led Zeppelin's records... But, you know, uh, Patty Boyd, we did an episode we on Patty did, Boyd. That's which right. Which is part of the Beatles story. She's part of the Beatles but canon. T- to what degree has hip-hop been in the omnibus? Maybe even less than you'd think, given knowing that we are two middle-aged white men. I mean, we rap periodically. I do several raps. Yeah, there's often a rap battle at the end of the show, but we usually cut it out. But, I, you know, every once in a while I'll slip in a little young MC, a little... uh a little two live crew into I mean, the thing under about, my breath. The thing about being Gen X is we did see hip hop uh, arrive, you know, not in the South Bronx, but we saw it arrive in American culture and we saw it take over American culture. I was a massive We're fan of rap music from the time I was introduced to it in the early 80s uh, all the way through college and beyond. And then somewhere along the line kind of fell fell off. I was kind of a late adopter, and I'm probably, honestly, more hip-hop friendly and conversant now than at any other time in my life. Yeah, I, I'm I'm maybe the the older Gen Xer who got, you know, who's like, Eric being Rakim is this is the highest form of music. And then after that, it was like, well, all this, is, this new stuff's just derivative slow jams, and I could not really get into crunk. And I mean, you know, Andre, 2000 and... Big boy. I thought an interesting, uh, possibly productive uh, omnibus entry might be about this kind of the tension between rock kids and hip hop kids, mm-hmm. uh, as demonstrated in, uh, you know, and possibly what the future holds in store for all of us, which is mashup culture making these distinctions irrelevant. I'm always surprised by the kind of ecumenical tastes of, of my kids, of, of, 
especially Gen Z, but maybe that started with the millennials. I just remember the kind of the tyranny of the new in my childhood where um, if you weren't listening to Top 40, you were not in the conversation. And of course, there were the kids who were proud that, hey, we listened to Zeppelin or, you know, but it was like, wait, really? That's an option? It didn't even occur to me. The fact that I went home and listened to the Beatles, I thought I couldn't tell anybody about. Well, Whereas that's totally gone for, for kids today who are, you know, proudly rehabilitating 20-year-old indie songs on TikTok and suddenly they're the song of the summer and just seem very open to the uh, obvious idea that they're the greatest songs are going to come in all genres and time periods. It's 100% a playlist-based consumption of music. No one... I mean, I, I talk to touring musicians all the time who say, you know, the audiences, potential audiences for bands on tour have n- maybe not even really fully embraced the idea that you should listen to more than one song by any particular band in a row. It's got to be such a problem that so many people out there love your amazing hooky song and could not tell you who performs it. Because it just goes by in the playlist and something else comes. I was in, as you know, a band that was, that I guess falls under the rubric of One Hit Wonder. Harvey Danger should have had three singles off of that first record, but uh, but only one was was released by the label, Flagpole Sitta. And I was in the band during the tours that followed the the hit, the era of the hit. And the guys, you know, Sean Nelson, the singer, kind of would write the set list. Did he ever not do Flagpole Sitta? He tried. Wow. I can see Sean doing that. Yeah. He, you know, he was like, we're not going to play the, the single anymore to everyone's absolute consternation. But he Everyone went, being the crowd the or the crowd, rest of the band? Uh, well, and the rest of the band is sort of like, you know, we would like at least one song where everybody jumped up and down. Well, plus you'd like people to come to the shows. Well, you know, a lot of those shows when you're a band at that one-hit wonder level, uh, you're on festival shows. Mm-hmm. So there's 10 bands, uh, and they all have one hit on the, you know, it's Marcy Playground and uh, and SR-71 and uh, Weedus. And, but still, you're not going to be on that list for long if you're not playing the song. Right. And so there, were, there, were, there was a phase, there were several shows where we played Flagpole Sitta first. Or in the first three songs. And we... That seems uh, unusual, right? Super Counterintuitive. bad. Because the audience would leave. <laughs> they would go to the other stage. They heard the song that they were there for. And then they, you know, they'd stay for one or two more songs. They're like, I don't know these songs. And this was uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So now I can't imagine... Well, I, I think I'm. I hear from a lot of musicians that are like, I don't. We don't even know what touring is now because it really. You could do a tour. I saw a reunion tour of '90s hip hop acts mm-hmm. that was Salt and Pepper with Vanilla Ice and really, yeah, like was it a county fair? It was, sort of was, but they did they did a tour where they, you know, Vanilla Ice was. Are ostensibly the headliner, although weird. Salt and Pepper had way more. Why were you at this? It's TLC, maybe it was on. Uh, well, you know, because I go to I go to shows, or I did. 
And um, I feel like I was at the equivalent of that tour, but it was some Erica Badu roots kind of thing, so I could feel good about myself. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I felt really good about myself because this was a spectacle, but it was a review, <laughs> right? They would come out, they do yeah, I've seen a, sort of a medley. I've seen that scene in that thing you do. Yeah, they come out, they do, they do the hit, and then they back up, you know, uh, the other artists for a couple of tunes. There's some dancing. And that's really what I imagine live music should be now. I mean, what what sixteen year old has ever sat through an entire album who isn't making a point to be a denim jacket wearing like music snob? Yeah, all concerts now should be like Top of the Pops, yeah. some British TV show from nineteen sixty six, where it's like, here's one song by the Honeycombs. We got the Dave Clark Five next. I mean, I can't I can't say that I don't listen to music like that now. When was the last time you sat down and listened to a, an album all the way through? And you love music. I love music so much. And albums. like Spotify has kind of turned me into a playlist kid. Yeah. And I feel bad about it because I'm like, oh, this is such a good vibe right now. Oh, really? Who is this? Um, uh, is beach, no peeking. Beach House, Beach Bunny, Beach. <laughs> is it Beach House or a band that sounds just like Beach House? You you definitely have my Spotify vibe yeah, down. Beach Bunny's <laughs> really good, actually. But no, that's exactly what I'm listening to, kind of. You know, slightly trancy, reverby, some yeah. some variety of indie rock vibe, and I am loving the vibe. And I have no idea who is providing it. Whereas thirty years ago, I would have known what city that was from, and what their scene was, and which college they went to, and which other bands they came up with. And uh, you know, the shift to the playlist has really changed things. We used to talk. So, we spent weeks trying to decide what order to put the 10 songs on our new record. And we would make song orders and send the send it back and forth These to are, each other. Like, which song, does this one, is the number three slot or should it be in the number seven slot? From the non-artist point of view, these conversations were happening in dorm rooms too because people talked obsessively about what order, you know, should this album be, be reordered? Uh, here's my mixtape idea. What should I put on it? It wasn't just bands that were having these kind of obsessive conversations about the album as a unit. Uh, music listeners in general were, and that's because this was an era from about it's about 20 years. early, The compact disc era, basically. Let's say 1982 to 2002, or whenever Napster happened, um, where record companies saw booming sales based on the sales of the album. The album was the unit. And in fact, during that time, they did everything they could to discourage people from buying singles. The 7-inch went away. There, the 7-inch went away. And there was a reason why those CD singles sucked and were hard to find and weren't distributed a lot and weren't good value for money. Because they knew that teens, given the chance, would buy the song. Yeah. And they wanted you to go to Tower Records and pay $14.95 for $14 the song. later. Or yeah. whatever, yeah. Um, when we would master records, which is the final process... Uh, before they go to production, we would sit, or I would sit with the mastering engineer and agonize over how many seconds of silence should be between songs. <laughs> and you would think, oh, I've never thought of it. It's not an industry standard. No, you would think that it was just, and with CDs, of course, they just, they chop up songs and they take away that element of the art. Well, it's still there, but it's just, a negative count before the beginning of the track, right? But but on the actual album, if you buy, say, a Long Winter's record on vinyl, the amount of time between songs, the amount of silence, was a thing we did entirely by feel 
and some songs were they came really hot on the heels of another song, you know, like one, two, and then the new song. Yeah. And some, you know, we let the we let it just hang. Would you say it varies more by the nature of the song before the break or the song after? Both. I mean, there's a there's the impact of the song coming in, and sometimes the song before you want to let that silence breathe before trying to introduce a new idea. You know, you want the listener to sit in silence. And one thing that the CD uh, did was it did away with medleys because there were, if you put a break, you would hear it, right? You'd hear, you'd that, hear little, the that little tick or that dropout. So that whole, you know, the whole side two of Abbey, of Road. Abbey Road, if you're going to have each one of those, and this is the thing from a publishing standpoint, if it's a medley, you only get paid for one song. Oh, so publishing goes by the track. Yeah. So you want to put six tracks in that space. But if you do, then you have this interruption. And also on shuffle, you can get these incongruous like middle parts, you know? How does the publishing work on fingerprints by They Might Be Giants? That's a really good question. It's like they, it's a couple dozen tracks. Yeah, do they get paid for 24 songs? I don't know. <laughs> We are driven by what ifs. We're the only species that can think in hypotheticals. John. I know I truly am. What if hiring didn't have to be so hard? What if finding great employees could just be easy as asking them to apply? What if George McGovern had won the 1972 presidential election? What if your dream hiring platform already exists? For all of those questions, except for the one about George McGovern, if hiring is an issue for you, you need indeed. What's life going to be like if I start using Indeed, Ken? You're going to be able to attract, interview, and hire new talent all in one place. You're not going to spend hours paging through job sites trying to find likely candidates. You're going to be able to set up a series of criteria because they've got a suite of powerful hiring tools. An instant match will give you a list of all the candidates you need. You can even make them take assessments. You can have them do virtual interviews. They're not just going to be jumping through hoops. You're actually going to find people... Applicants that perform all the skills you need. So you're saying I can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place? All in one place. Think of all the time you'll save. Think of all the time. You don't need to install anything. It'll just work out of your browser. You don't need to buy anything extra, no downloads or plugins. Most employees said this saves them days of time when they hire. Well, you know, we, we often appeal to employers to use Indeed, but it sounds like this really helps Potential employees, too. Exactly. It's an easy way to find people who have the exact proficiencies you need. That's why 3 million businesses worldwide use it. I read somewhere that applicants who scored proficient or higher on the reliability assessment were twice as likely to be on time for work, according to Indeed data. Oh, really? Where'd you read that? Uh, is, that just, is that like in the New Yorker this week? You no, know, I go through all the trades. I read all the <laughs> trades. <laughs> well, just in the minute we've been talking, 16 hires were made on Indeed.com worldwide. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? That's it, phenomenal. Should we talk for another minute about this so it could be 32 people? <laughs> you know what? Every, every, what, two seconds that we talk, two or another person gets hired? Uh, it looks like about one every four. Three seconds? Every three three, three seconds? to four seconds, okay. if my math is right. So well, the longer we stretch this out, the more people are getting hired out from under you. 
You need to go to Indeed.com now. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. Is that how you're going to do that reading? It seems like you didn't know how that sentence was going to end when you started. No, I, I knew it exactly. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. Try it like this. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. How about this? Indeed knows when you're indeed knows when you're growing your own business. Here, try this. I'm gonna make you very urgent about something. Right. Is that a fire behind you? <gasps> now in, read it. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. Oh man, that's magic. I have goosebumps. You only pay for quality applications from resumes in their database matching your job description. You, wow, you don't pay a penny unless you find a matching candidate. So visit indeed.com slash omnibus to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash omnibus. Indeed.com slash omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. Costs per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Anyway, so that era, I mean, this is a story that happened right at the end of that era, right as that whole 20-year amazing unsustainable roller coaster rise of album sales uh took off and then the subsequent collapse and you know the record companies did not blame that on boy i guess we shouldn't have killed the single and and ramped up 20 years of unsustainable sales as as all the boomers bought their records again on compact disc and you know the next generation or two did the same uh they just kind of thought those numbers were going to continue forever so we get into some kind of weird legal and ownership areas as we talk about the gray album from 2004 an an interesting time in rock history you know we've done a show about brian eno before you know the great genius uh you know almost quasi mystical level uh producer slash uh, uh what's the word impresario everything you know it was full specter for the previous generation and then it was eno and if there is one today in the music industry as it exists, there's a pretty good case that it's Brian Burton who records and produces and everything else under his nom de, de fursuit, uh, Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse, who got his start in his high school bedroom remixing tunes on his, what, his Dell computer? He has an interesting childhood that kind of... I, I know people tend to mythologize, once they attain a certain level of celebrity, I know firsthand that you tend to mythologize your own childhood. And I, in interviews, I have to talk endlessly about how I loved game shows as a kid, for example. Even though you hated them. <laughs> I hated them so much. <laughs> like you heard about the time I, I uh, just beat up Gene Rayburn outside that bar, right? No, I did love game shows, but you know, if my life had gone in a different direction, I'd be telling a different story right. now. Like I wouldn't be like, you know what I used to love? Hollywood Squares. Holy crap, Hollywood Squares was good. No, you'd be like, I loved programming computers. It really would be. If I was still in computers, it would be like, we got our first Apple IIe in 1980. You know, it would just be a different story. But but uh, Brian Burton definitely seems to be a product of his unusual childhood. I mean, today, of course, he is the producer of records by a, everything, but everybody from Adele uh, to Red Hot Chili Peppers, Black Keys, ASAP Rocky, Nora Jones. It's almost... Uh, you know, every possible genre of, of popular music is right. being represented there. And uh, he's the king of the of the duo or the duet, you know, with CeeLo Green. He formed uh, Narls Barkley, but then he's also 
what's the Shins guy's name? He's in um, James Mercer. He's in Broken Bells with James Mercer, which is again kind of a crossing the you know hands across the sea between indie rock and uh, and different kinds of dance music and trip hop. With MF Doom, he I don't know what that was called, Danger Doom. I think he's duetted with Karen. Oh, he's got a record now with Black Thought from Roots. Um, so he's also an artist and a songwriter and an instrumentalist. Uh, and a mega, much sought after mega producer with a bajillion Grammys and Grammy nominations. He was born in uh, White Plains, New York. Kind of grew up in I think I think it's it's whatever's west of there, across the Hudson, Rockland County, maybe, mm-hmm. um, where he was maybe one of two black families in a Jewish neighborhood. So he, uh, you know, he's going to he's the only black kid in the school. He's a, he becomes a skater. And it's a great cultural shock to the system when his family moves to Stone Mountain, Georgia, when he's uh, 12 or 13. You know, he's middle school age, junior high age. That would be a shock. He shows up to his school in his Metallica t-shirt, and suddenly he is the no longer the one black kid in the high school. Now he's, who is this kid with an Afro and a Metallica shirt? Right. And it's, as you can imagine, hip-hop culture down there, whether you're white, black, or other— and he immediately uh, realizes that he's made a terrible mistake. So he's, you know, he's already kind of straddling this musical divide that we're talking about between the rock kids and the hip hop kids, which was pretty wide back then. You know? Well, he was born in 77, right? So he's moving down there in the early 90s, mm-hmm. which would have, you know, that represents, well, to me, a turning point in the relationship between hip hop and rock. It's a turning point in America's relationship with hip-hop, right? That was after the charts changed and hip-hop had become both mainstream, but then it was also the Parents' Music Resource Center, warning label era. You're getting, I mean, you. I mean, I associate the early 90s with, like, you know, hip-hop you could be serious about. You know, it's, Cypress it's Hill. Pu- pu- Public Enemy and yeah, it's Cypress right. Hill and it's... You know, suddenly it's no longer this monolithic thing where, like, hey, if you don't like all these other kinds of music, there's one other thing, and it's Run DMC, and it sounds like this. Right. Um, so he's very cognizant of that divide. He goes to the University of Georgia in Athens, um, as so many other great future musicians have, but he is not into the scene at all. He's a straight-laced business student, um, maybe kind of a nerdy kid. But one night, by his own origin story, he has an epiphany in a bar. He's you know he's now straight up hip hop. He's he's adopted the the language of his generation after moving to Georgia. But he's sitting in a bar, and a, for some reason, a Pink Floyd song comes on. And maybe it's just that he's had too much to drink. But he is just floored, and he thinks, tears streaming down yeah, his face. Like this is gorgeous. Hello, and, hello, hello. I wonder which song. Is anybody in there? I didn't. I, I don't know if there's an account where it says which song. There's a lot of Pink Floyd music that, if it hits you when you're not paying attention, uh, especially if you're from our generation, right? It can uh, it can sneak in under your cynicism, and it's very affecting. I feel like I first heard Dark Side of the Moon when I was too young to know, like, oh, Pink Floyd. That's you know who listens to. Here's the kind of person who listens to that. And I kind of wish I'd found Rush or whatever the same way before I had a, a reason to, to scorn it a little bit. Oh, you never got a pre-scorn Rush? I never did. Uh-huh. But with Pink Floyd, I was very much like, oh, man, like it's like I'm in a different place, and these guys are so wise, and yeah. I'm there, man. Anyway, he had that experience. But for him, it's very much colored by 
his upbringing and his experience and, you know, why, why do people get all, you know, uh, cornered into hip hop or ghettoized into rock? And, you know, why can't we all just appreciate this? And being then, I guess, the mid nineties, there's an outlet for that. He becomes a huge trip hop fan and amateur artist. You know, he, he discovers Portishead and massive attack and, for our future listeners, this was a time when there was this offshoot of hip hop that sort of merged with these kind of fusiony, psychedelic, slowed down vibes. I mean, n- more from the world of dance music and yeah, electronica it, it, than from rock. It came out of shoegaze and its connection with yeah, it was all weird Manchester. But I guess there drugs. is, I guess there is lot, plenty of, you know, yeah. what would have been, you know, all kinds of underground rock feeding into that as, as well. Soon, as soon as you put drum machines and samples on rock i mean really all basically like i've been writing this thesis for a long time it all starts with zz top's eliminator album (laughs) but you know that when when rock merges with i don't know if i know that (laughs) now that i think about i'm like nodding and then i'm like wait what this is my 33 and a third book that i've been writing since since 2001 zz top's eliminator is the that is the record that stands astride all all mashups all future forms of music as far as i can think there is no zz top um 33 and a third now so you still got it all to yourself they have started to repeat artists for a while there was just i think it was just only was it only beach boys or something rolling stones there was only like one artist that they had two everybody wants to do patty smith because they all want to sound smart but I'm telling you, it's ZZ Top. <laughs> That's what the cool kids are listening to. So he becomes a he becomes a budding musician, um, just through the world of trip hop. Um, at some point, he moves to London after, you know, just to get serious about music. I think he maybe gives up on his MBA dreams. Moves to London. He's tending bar at a little place near London Bridge and living in a crappy flat somewhere, and apparently having a really bad depressing time it's not a good you know that's what london is famous for it's not a city where you go to make new friends i i'm told about Has he ever london? read david copperfield <laughs> <It's> yeah. <laughs> you should have told him it's not where you go hey hey uh brian i'm in this can i call you danger i'm in this book club <laughs> the happiest summer i ever spent was the winter i was not in london <laughs> and he's done some performing he's still a shy kid which means when he performs his trip-hop compositions he doesn't really want eye contact so much yeah he's putting on a mouse head he's gangly he wears sunglasses he's a tall he's a he's a you know kind of a gentle giant of a guy he's handsome good looking guy good looking you know um impressive afro you know a great a great look but he doesn't want to be seen so he wears a mouse head where does he get the mouse head when he's on set it's a good question you can't just go to you can't just go to some uh, walmart outside athens georgia and get a mouse head is he the is, first is he a furry he may be. Is he the first um, DJ to wear a, a head? Where, he's, he's before Daft Punk, for sure. Daft Punk wasn't doing this yet? I don't think so. This would have been like 2003 or so. And what does that mean? I guess those guys have been wearing their helmets back into the 90s. Yeah. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll jump back to that in a second, just to kind of the roots of that kind of DJ music. Um but he uh, he actually gets a, a record deal in London um, on kind of a little underground label. And so he, he's moved back to L.A. by the time, by November 2003, when 
Jay-Z, at this time, in this post-Tupac and Biggie world, the biggest rap star in the world, the biggest star in hip-hop, has released what he has uh, told everybody for uh, years will be his last record. Okay. The Black Album. The summation of his work. This is it. Um, as we know, looking back from the 2020s... Not this, it. This lasted, what, I don't know, two or three years? This, Like so many music retirements... Yeah. This one did not stick. Sufjan Stevens was going to do a record for every state in the United States. <laughs> Jay-Z was going to do every color, and he started with black. Mm-hmm. Jay-Z um, is, uh, you know, is, is basically my age. He's a, he's a Gen Xer. And, yeah, uh, you guys would have a lot to talk about. You know, Jay... You'd or, be like, you know, hey, uh, which Laverne Shirley's uh, do you watch? <laughs> he's from New York City. We'd have a lot to talk about. Famously, uh... Uh, rumored that he took his name from his uh, his Brooklyn train station by his you know the projects where he lived where the J and the Z train oh. come, but apparently that's not true. And in fact, it's um, anachronistic. The J and the Z train do go to that stop today, but would not have been correct when he was a kid. I see. Um, he uh, you know with that record because of the the mashup culture that was just kind of budding there that we'll get into in a second. He put out. An uh, an acapella version of every track, like he made the the raw vocal tracks. I think in many cases with the hooks available because he was he was online making a statement that was pro sampling, pro um, r- appropriation of of stuff to make right. new stuff. Make your own art, you know. I've I've I came up sampling, you know, you know all these great beats and breaks, and you should do. The same. So kind of, yes, as, as kind of a statement, a reverse of the increasingly draconian uh, ownership laws and policies around music at the time. Like Radiohead saying, pay what you want for Kid A. Jay-Z's version of that is, if you've bought the record, you can have the vocal tracks without the beats. And Brian Burton decides to continue what he thinks of now as, as activism, you know, kind of bridging this gap between the rock world's and the world of hip-hop uh, with a project of his own that he spends, uh, you know, a, a few obsessive weeks just staring at a computer screen assembling. And it's an irresistible, high-concept idea. What if you put the vocal tracks of Jay-Z's Black Album against instrumental tracks chosen from the Beatles' 1968 double album record? The Beatles, generally called the White Album, because the Beatles is a terrible album name. It is. Unless you're not the Beatles. Like, if you're Wilco and you call a record the Beatles, that's kind of funny. Well, remember, uh, R.E.M. released an, uh, a record called Eponymous, which... That's kind of a nerdy... funny. That's a nerdy... Uh, that's the... That's obviously the Peter Buck uh, reading all the rock critics yeah. part of the band, yeah. right? It was a greatest hits record, too, so... Yeah, oh. it was all the it was all the singles and B-sides. I had all the IRS records, up to and including Dead Letter Office and uh, Eponymous. Eponymous is the singles, right? Nerd. Dead Letter Office is the B-sides. Yes. Um, and this is... They he, airbrushed my face. <laughs> they airbrushed my face. They can sit... You know, and, he, and he can... You know, Burton now, sitting at home trying to combine these two albums, is not doing anything new. By 2004, this kind of mashup culture... Uh, remixing things, combining things, slapping different kinds of art, and particularly music together, and specifically often the vocals of one music over the instrumental beats or tracks or backgrounds of another composition was pretty common. It um, 
it traces itself in its kind of highfalutin uh, self-history back to the early 20th century, back to Duchamp and Man Ray and the Dadaists. You know, this is our, let's cut apart a novel into individual words and throw them at a piece of paper. This is our, let's put a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Because that's what the Dadaists were doing, right? You know, previously that would have been verboten to to do something like that to pre-existing art, or at least it wouldn't have been high art. And the thing about Dada is not just to say, well, I'm so naughty, I put a mustache on the Mona Lisa, but to say, and it's art. Mm-hmm. This upside-down urinal is just as much art as your, as your Pieta. It's not a pipe. Michelangelo. It's not a pipe. It's not even a picture of a pipe. Um... And, you know, you can kind of think about the way art kind of fractured and all the collage of... Part of it is just tech, new technologies, right? Photography makes new techniques and new repurposing of old art possible. Before, you would have had to sit and repaint the Mona Lisa and then do your gag, and that eliminates the whole conceptual underpinnings of the of the uh, feat, right? Right. Um, but in a world with mass reproduction of art... There's a lot more possibilities. Now, in music, there has long been a tradition of... This was something I had not considered, but it was pointed out by um, a writer named Charles Fairchild I'm relying on here, who's written a lot about the the historical underpinnings of mashup culture, trying to give it some legitimacy, I think, because, you know, it's the same as anybody. I like this kind of music. Let me tell you why it's... I like ZZ Top. Let me tell you why this album explains everything about its moment. Listen, don't steal my... My thesis. People are listening right now. Well, now they're going to want. Now they're going to want to read about it, and they will. They will. <laughs> Their interest is peaked. Uh-huh. Um, Fairchild points out that there's really a long tradition of borrowing in music. In fact, it's it's a new the the innovation. The 20th century introduction is to say this is not how music works. Music should be original. You know, it wasn't. You know, pretty much all traditions, whether it's classical music, motifs would be borrowed. Folk ballads. You'd be reinterpreting somebody else's folk ballad, but you've added a new melody, or you've got a new chorus, or now something else happens when the knight meets the damsel in the third verse. You know, ballads were almost like fairy tales where they would, you know, historians now have to classify them by the type of story there are because there's so many different variants. And, you know, today we would say remixes of it's basically how of these ballads, how we remember the, uh, the, the Iliad. Exactly. You know, this goes back to, and it, yeah, and it's because these are traditions that predate recording, and in some cases even predate sheet music. Um, but the idea that you could slap together recordings of songs rather than just motifs or lyrics or verses or whatever from them um, arises in the mid 20th century, and this is going to take us back to uh, what was that omnibus? Slang Tang Rhythm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to take us back to the 1950s streets of Kingston, Jamaica, where suddenly sound systems, really powerful sound systems, were became affordable. And in you know, in that culture where communal gathering is so important, suddenly that spawned a new scene of dance parties at all kinds of community gatherings. Um, and it's where the phenomenon of dub music emerged when, you know, to keep the party, to keep the lengthy parties going at some of these community gatherings, the DJs, the people choosing and spinning the records started to think of more innovative ways you could spin a record. You know, you could make sure that the new one started before the old one had ended to keep the movement going. At that point, you can try to maybe match 
tempo um, or that, other qualities of the music. That was one of the cleverest things about being a, a DJ at the time to really to do that with records. God, it was a skill. Can you imagine? Like it's actually. A, I remember. I mean, I, I, yeah, a pre garage band world. Yeah, to when people had to pull put records up and and get the you know with their headphones to match you know where they were uh, and make those segues. Whew. And that's really what gave prestige to the art form was that it required this amazing manual dexterity and such a knowledge of of music, right? To to be able to especially incorporate you know all us high school kids that were like, "Hey, place Sea of Love by the Honey Drippers." And the guys like, "Oh my god. Seriously, I've got a whole thing worked out here. I'll get your Honey Drippers in there." Uh in Kingston, uh you know, a, a even more playful kind of uh of a spirit started to emerge where, you know, as we alluded to in the Sling Ting Rhythm Show, they realized that often you could kind of react to the energy on the dance floor by, you know, kind of withholding something, you know, mm-hmm. keep playing, you know, isolate just the rhythm, <laughs> keep playing the beat or the break <laughs> on repeat. And then, you know, with, you know, so p- people would expect the, the instrumentals or the vocals to drop and then they wouldn't. Or correspondingly, you could do the same thing. You could, you could withhold the beat. And you, you get kind of, you, by going against the expectations of what people wanted, you could have amazing reactions from the Murder dance floor. Murder them with the drop. Uh, in the 1970s, a lot of these same techniques or same approach to innovative DJing started to be, started to emerge kind of by parallel evolution, maybe more than by influence in the, in the disco clubs of Paris and London and particularly New York City. And, uh, you know, as Fairchild sees it, this is, as disco kind of, as these techniques kind of advance from disco into what we now think of as electronica or EDM, you know, the innovation there was kind of creating a new world. When you come onto the dance floor, you're in a new space, and the DJ can make choices that, like, you know, keeps you in the, and obviously a lot of that space, let's be clear, is created by whatever you've ingested, you know, you've. You've got mm-hmm. something in your system mm-hmm. that um, creates a kind of a heightened state of mind. Adrenaline. But, yeah, love. That's what I mean. It's often love. I mean love, mm-hmm. but also rave drugs. Yeah, sure. Um, and the DJ can, you know, can recognize that vibe and keep that going by um, creating things in his, basically by creating a hypnotic flow that doesn't exist in any recorded version of the music by making choices about what he plays, what, what he, or they, he or she, what he plays when. Um, in the seventies, it was cocaine. There weren't, there wasn't ecstasy yet. Right. As di- that's the thing. As disco moves into EDM, that's that's kind of what happens. It, it 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 ceases to be frenetic. Leave everything out there at all times, and more like, what kind of mood or flow can we create? Um, I, mean, I, th- it, I think it's a there there are there are histories of it that want to put the Grateful Dead into that story. Their light shows and their trippy. I'd buy that uh, LSD. Uh, and the fact that they played, you know, these just endlessly mm-hmm. meandering um, Which, tunes that were not that that they had real intention behind, you know, to to but the, you'd appreciate it on a different level depending on you know right the acid the in the same way that you never got a pre scorn rush. There are a lot of people without a pre scorn Grateful Dead that and I'm not one of them <laughs> that can't appreciate the the uh, the the hard work that went into being that stoned. Yeah, I mean, I have. It's true. I have the same problem with jam bands that, like, I knew about 
I knew to laugh at them before I had ever really had the pure teenage experience with them. Yeah. So I missed it. Um, and then, of course, as we move into the, you know, that's kind of the, you know, the 60s and 70s of disco. Then we move into the 70s and 80s and you were in the South Bronx and in the hip hop scene, um, all the uh, virtuosity gets just gets bumped up another notch. And, you know, the incredible skill of these DJs starts, something new starts to emerge, which is we can actually make new compositions, basically. We right. can reconstruct. This is no longer just, what if the song was a little slower? Wouldn't the vibe be better? This is now, this we're, is a whole new song with bits from A, B, and C. And we're going to actually put it on vinyl and it's going to come out as a 12-inch, right? And you can release it. So re- the first recordings of mashups or remixes... I mean, there's all kinds of precursors and predecessors going back, but it's it's pretty much the early 80s. There's mm-hmm. like an Italian music collective that in 1983 uh, gets a mashup, you know, gets a combination, a remix of Do It Again by Steely Dan and Billie Jean hmm. onto the European charts. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these cases, in a lot of these cases, you can, it's just people who are like, well, I like Billie Jean, so I love when this comes out on the radio. It's got part of Billie Jean in it. Um, Even the Billie Jean bass line is a a ripoff from uh, Hall & Oates. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. In fact, Michael Jackson copped to it. I think, I think, uh, I think it was Quincy Jones that actually called him out on it. (laughs) And then when you talk to Daryl Hall, he's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. He was one of the original kind of like, that's fine. I mean, we all borrow from each other. And it was, you know, it's totally like that's almost, our baseline. It's but. almost verbatim the Paul McCartney quote you read later about the Grey album, where he's, you know, he admits that, you know, at first you're like, hey, I came up with that. And then you're like, hey, I came up with that. You yeah. know, like, what a nice compliment that you like the riff enough. Yeah. Um, a lot of artists did not have that. The Rolling Stones were not that generous. I guess it's often tilted by the fact that you're asking a very success, you know, it's easier for Paul McCartney or, or Daryl Hall or whatever to be gracious because they're doing fine and they've got their place in the South of France. Maybe it's some other artist on the bubble who's, whose work is, who's not being compensated for their work who might have a, a fair shot at grousing. Um, and that's kind of what happened. You know, that's a lot of these court cases are, you know, funk groups who could really right. use the income today who's, Drums are the yeah, key yeah, element. Whose yeah. horn hits are being sampled or whatever. Now, it's been a minute since we've had new Omnibus shirts and merch available, John. I am so excited that we have new shirts. Uh, I think Futurelings love our shirts, and these shirts are particularly cool. I mean, one thing we have been doing more frequently is offering snap judgments on whether particular structure systems phenomenon objects are or are not compatible with the writings of Karl Marx. And for listeners who are not interested in things that are compatible with Marxism, we also sometimes adjudicate that things are not compatible with Marxism. No matter which of the sociopolitical theories of the 20th century you subscribe to, uh, you'll find something to cheer for on Omnibus. But I don't actually know, is selling t-shirts compatible with Marxism? No. Uh, not compatible with Bolshevism. Does it I'll... depend on the shirt? Because here, here's the new limited offer shirts we have available right now. If you go to omnibusproject.com slash store, you'll see that our friends at Mediocrity have two new t-shirts, one of which says compatible with Marxism, and the other says not compatible with Marxism. 
We're trying out a new thing. I have always felt that uh, T-shirts that had too much ink on them were difficult to wear because, you know, all that ink weighs you down. Because they get all crispy? Yeah, they just kind of blah. So I suggested maybe if we had a smaller uh, little slogan that was just over the left breast. This is more of a sporty uh, yeah. a sporty uh, uh, business casual t-shirt. Right, and then it requires that people say, what does that mean? And then you can wax uh, poetic about how much you love the Omnibus Project, and you can... Uh, display your proclivities or your political right. sensibilities. This is going to give us some polling data. Mm-hmm. We're going to know how many people bought the compatible with Marxism shirt in black versus how many bought the not compatible mark with Marxism shirt in gray. And you can buy both shirts and wear them depending on your mood that day. You can, when you're hanging out with your your hippie friends, your leftist friends, you can wear compatible with Marxism. And when you're hanging out with your Parents, yeah, or your parents or your libertarian friends, uh, you can you can uh, wear your not compatible with Marxism. Shirt. And it's true that you get a fifty uh, percent discount on your second shirt if you get them both. I see at mediocrity.com. Nice. nice. So if you nice. want to make your voice heard on the tenets of Marxism and how they relate to T-shirt fashions, mm-hmm. go to omnibusproject.com/store and start shopping. I'm going to get one of each because I'm going to, I'm going to wear them depending on my mood. The and many I, moods of Tovarish Roderick. That's right. And I'm going to get two for my daughter so that she's going to have to explain to her little friends, her little Montessori friends, she's going to have to reiterate all the different times I've tried to explain Marxism to her. I'm going to get two, but I'm just going to get the not compatible with Marxism one twice because I don't want to get canceled. <laughs> In the 1990s, the very early 1990s, you get kind of the first ones that maybe I remember hearing. Fat Boy Slim did a mix-up of uh, the SOS bands Just Be Good to Me with Guns of Brixton by The Clash. And then I still remember where I was the first time I heard, I can't even remember the name of the artist, but the Suzanne Vega. Uh, DNA. DNA, there you go. Do, 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 do. That was a huge moment. I had you. Have, I had not heard the original. I don't think is that on Solitude Standing. I don't think I had the record it came from. It's from uh, the original release was in the early '80s. The Suzanne Vega track came out in the early '80s, but they re-released it after Luca. So yeah, I was a member in the late '80s of a kind of lesbian subculture that listened to Suzanne Vega and the Indigo Girls. God, you're such a good ally, John. It was It was at a time, you know, when... when for, for me, it was the girls in my high school, the future lesbians in my high school listening to Indigo Girls. And mm-hmm. I was like, hey, this is great. Um, for you, they were probably college by this time. Yeah, and we, we you know, that was that was the soundtrack, I think, of my sophomore year, all that. And then when, when this reinvented Tom's Diner came out... Uh, it, it, it was just like, say what now? It's a watershed moment because the remix is undeniably better, so much better. and unlocks things in the song. I mean, the do-do-do-do hook, she just kind of does it at the beginning as kind of an improvised... It's a nothing in the original. Yeah. And they just were like, no, 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 that's actually the... That's the hook, What if that were the song? Realizing the power of just a drum... Because they didn't put on a bunch of... There's no horn, you know? It's a soul-to-soul sample, I think? yeah. Uh, realizing that it, it it affected me as a musician, just thinking like, oh, you could take that and make it that. And of course, what's happened around this time is that digital tools have started to make this accessible to kids in their dorm rooms. Um, suddenly, you don't have to have 
a complicated turntable setup and a amazing wax collection and manual dexterity and it's, th- it's still going to go my, wrong all the time. I couldn't get my Apple IIe to do that <laughs> in 1990, but I suppose if I'd read the manuals, maybe I could have. I think there were people. There were samples. Yeah. When 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 did sampling? It was predominantly digital by the mid 90s, I guess. So it must have been a pretty quick changeover. Uh, I think if I if I had tried, I could have gotten my my 1990 computer to do interesting things. I, I thought just, you were going to say, I think I, if I had tried a little harder, I could have been one of the world's great mi- remix artists. Well, that's the, that's the subtext of what I'm saying. <laughs> if I had learned to use an Apple IIe to its See? full potential, I could have, you would, you know, you'd be talking to me now. You're always putting down my, my, cho- my chosen field of uh, computer science, yeah, but yeah, no. think, think you'd be Fat Boy Slim today. I'm just jealous. You'd be in the Chateau Marmont with Christopher Walken right now mm-hmm. if you had, uh, if you just stuck to your computer guns a little bit. Shoulda, shoulda, coulda, woulda. So this is the this is the world that has emerged now for Brian Burton or Danger Mouse in early 2003 where pretty much anybody with a PC can isolate and loop and uh adjust and tweak bits of music and create utterly new effects and in fact there's this whole you know the virtuosity of hip hop has it's just caused an explosion of creativity where people will take a tiny little snippet from this song and, you know, I'm going to play this, I'm going to amp up the, you know, I'm going to turn this guitar line into a bass line and the horn hits are going to come from here. And you're really, you're really, it's almost like you're building with Legos. It's no longer like, what if this song was still itself but with a different beat? It's almost like these are now my transistors that I use to build a new machine. But this was also the time when, the world of music was really pushing back on that, right? I mean, De La Soul made Three Feet High and Rising almost entirely out of samples. It was, and some might argue, uh, a consummate work of musical genius. Pre-digital too, right? But they, yeah. And, but, and pre-permissions. But they got, I mean, you still, it's still hard to find that record because getting all the permissions for it became, as a result of it, I think, the... Like, incredibly hard to do. You could never make that record now, in other words. Yeah, I think there's songs you still can't put in movies, or at least it's primitive to put in movies, because you'd have to clear not just the song, but all the uncleared samples in them. Yeah. Um, And at first, it was a legal Wild West, where everyone kind of assumed, well, of course I can do this. Everybody back home is doing this. They've been doing this in the South Bronx for 20 years. Are you kidding me? Right. And the people who owned the recordings were not kidding you. Um, and a lot of these cases went to court. And in general, they had pretty, they had kind of an ironclad case. Um, most of the case law came down in favor of, no, you have to pay to use a sample. That's, that's what comes with composing a piece of work. I'm, like, as an artist, like, are you sympathetic to that view? Uh, well, no, because the work that was produced in that era of like um because there there because there is a lot of of case law about uh if you take a piece of art and change it a certain percentage transformative work it becomes part of the something fair use else. doctrine and and uh you know so much of that rap sampling at that moment in history it made it made this kind of music that was 
In hindsight, you can't agree that it didn't make the world better. It made the world better. Yeah. It absolutely made the world better. It so made if, music better. So if all these IP laws exist for the to promote creativity or whatever the whatever the Constitution says, then the laws are not working if they stifle De La Soul and the I mean and girl talk. The problem is you could make that record with the samples and then go into a studio with a really good band and re-record all of those parts lose the kind of scratchy infidelity of the like but you could do it right you could use the samples as a creative tool and then replace them with live recordings and you wouldn't be in trouble there probably are qualities of the recording that you want there's a reason you stole that you chose that horn stab or that that weird echoey vocal or whatever for sure but you know the the um the verve is the is the always the example the verve's the bittersweet symphony bittersweet symphony lift you know the they ended up giving all their money to the rolling stones and that was dumb of them and that's what's new you know now that the idea that so what comes out here is a legal question as much of an artist as an artistic one because three to four companies now own pretty much all the recordings that have ever been made right and you can't you can't fight City Hall, you know. You can't fight BMG or Sony. There actually have been a few. Uh, I was looking for sampling rulings that went for the for the defendant, and there have been a few. I don't I don't know if there have been any that used the fair use doctrine. You know, fair use is just a defense. So by the time you're saying, "Hey, this is fair use," you're already in court. You know, somebody's already sued you. You right. can't you can't pre- preemptively say, "Hey, uh, sorry, BMG, um, this is fair use." And there's so many prongs of the fair use defense. You know, it depends on how much of the work you used, how central the stuff you used is to that work, how central the stuff you used is to your work, how transformative it is. Did you effectively create something new? What What is your use of the work likely to do to the income earning power of the person you stole it from? So you've got judges who are not subject area experts or artists of any kind or musicians trying to balance all these different prongs of the test in their head. Um, but I mean, a- Andy Warhol's Elvis. Right. Is the photo- in some cases, the photographers and the rights owner sued over yeah. those and judges ruled. Well, that's transformative. They've been reluctant to do so in the cases of recordings, maybe just because it's big, powerful corporations and there's, we've kind of, understood you know this is not how music ownership has to work this is not the only way these rights could work but we live in a world where they can say no right and we're just used to that and we now so we give them a lot of you know legally they tend to get a lot of consideration that maybe in a better system they wouldn't you know warhol's elvis is just a promotional still from a film Mm -hmm. uh and then other people used it as a as a takeoff for their own art, right? You see it appropriated. There's actually a poster uh, that I did for a show where the photographer had me pose in the pose of Elvis with the pistol. With the, with the gunfight Yeah, thing? and then and then duplicated it. What? Which of his movies is a Western? What is that even from? Some, someone will tell us. Flaming Star. It's one of the, is that right? Yeah. So I did find a, sam- there's a sampling case in the 21st century that actually was found in favor of the... Uh, of the remixer, um, but it was not fair use. The The uh, defense was the de minimis doctrine, mm-hmm. which basically says the law doesn't meddle with trifles. 
Oh, and that, uh-huh. hold, that holds in everything. If you can prove, Your Honor, this is no biggie. Basically, that's a legal argument. Yeah, Your, I like it. Your Honor, this is no biggie. And in this case, I think it was like a single horn stab from a parliament record or something. Yeah. And they were like, hey, they sampled this. We own this. And the judge actually found, you do, but who gives it, you know, who cares? Wow, who gives a care? Yeah. Love it. Um, but except for that, that, really, the courts have kind of stuck to no. Sampling is not, it's not yours. It, it doesn't belong to your ear. Yeah. And this came back to bite our hero, Brian Burton, because after his intense, you know, three weeks or whatever it was, combining Jay-Z's vocals on the Black Album with... With cut-up bits of the White Album. Little tiny bits. So he really does quite a bit of work. Um, he reorders the songs, for one thing. It's not just the Black Album with new instrumentals like he has created a new concept album by reordering the songs for the most part for the beginning of the album each jay-z song only has a a little it's a single Beatles song underneath it um and generally it's a few different he he pulls out three or four different parts of the song some so small that to this day critics disagree over which part of dear prudence or whatever is being sampled yeah he slices it and loops it sometimes pretty tight loop Really tight loops. Um, then he'll abruptly switch to a different part of the song in the middle of it. Um, but then he'll come back. He he modifies the Beatles. He's not just taking the Beatles songs. He's adjusting their their tempi. He's uh, you know bringing out you know bass or treble to make them sound differently. He's if he wants the hand claps to sound bigger, he's doubling them. You know he's doing all kinds of work on the source on the Beatles source as well um, to make it sound fundamentally different. But it really creates it creates something very new because it forces you to consider the two things together. But until the last two tracks, which are more much more of a kind of a freeform sonic explosion with multiple Beatles songs layered in, for the most part, he just combines each Jay Z track with the backing bed from one Beatles track, and he leaves in some of the hooks in addition to the vocals, which makes it even more challenging, because then you've got to match the harmonies and the chord changes to, you know, to make sure whatever the, the chai lights or whatever the Jay-Z hooks are match your, your Beatles. Um, but for the most part, it's one song to one. You know, December 4th has Mother Nature's Son under it. Um, 99 Problems has Helter Skelter under it. It's, uh, at first, it kind of seems like a stunt or a gimmick, Right. Because it's all based upon the names, you know. He chose uh, chose this apparently based on the pun of black album versus white album, um, which you'd think would not be the basis for great art. But you know, constraints have a power. You know, you great art is produced under great constraints, and it really is. It's a pretty compelling piece of work. Do you like it? Have you heard it? Oh yeah, I mean, I I listened to it at the time, and I listened to it at, uh, again recently um it always struck me as an art uh happening more than a music happening he called it an art project yeah especially when he started to get cease and desist letters and and you know the 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 issue for me musically is that the beatles have a certain swing Mm -hmm. that is not soul and hip-hop has very minimalist production uh, because because all the busyness is in the vocals, 
and I found the the listening experience just 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 too busy. And partly it's because you know Ringo has a real swing, but it's a very different swing than um, than yeah, he's not a metronomic drummer. No, like Bernard Purdy or whatever has got. There's this. He's it's very laid back. Ringo is metronomic, but he's and I, you you would never say he was on top of the beat. But it's not. It, he's the Beatles aren't laid back, and so I just found a lot of the flow of the vocals clashing with the with feel, and and you, you the tempo lines up, but the feel doesn't. I'm sure he would say that schizophrenia is is part of, part the, of the art. Part of the art, you yeah. know. That's because everybody's going to bring. You know, most listeners, or at least the rock critics who love this thing to death, are bringing with it their experience with the White Album and the Black Album. So they're hearing fragments of songs they love, and you can't divorce it. Yeah, you can't hear the beginning of "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" and not think about that track. Um, it's extremely inventive, right? Yeah. And I think if he had done it differently, if he had taken Beatles sounds and made them hooks instead of using Beatles sounds as beds. Yeah. But, you know, that's just whatever. Well, he was very limited because he could only take parts of Beatles songs that had no vocals over them. Right. You know, an interesting thing that happened when the rock band video games came out is that those actually had the... um, you know the the different channels. What what's stems. the word? The we, stems before it's mastered, right? Yeah. So you could actually hear just the bass line or, or without the vocals or whatever. And suddenly, remixers could have a field day with that. Yeah. Samplers could have a field day, but you know, he all he has is the copy of the white album you get at the store, and so he's got to find little breaks that don't have the Beatles saying the or raccoon or whatever over it. And and invariably they have four things going on in them even those little breaks yeah and he and he kind of revels i mean it's when you think about the white album it's such a crazy schizophrenic record anyway the beatles are starting to unravel a bit so there's less collaboration sometimes paul's playing the drums because ringo left in a huff think of all the genres on that record i know it's got it's got a country ballad you know rocky raccoon's a country ballad you know uh, honey pie is the stupidest music hall song imaginable proto punk and you know helter skelter might as well be metal and then you've got revolution number nine so it's an art thing um so it's all over the place and he really you know the gray album really kind of indulges that spirit um but it just invites comparisons between the two worlds you can't like you're saying it's you always got that tension and you could consider that um you know the both the white album and the black album are you know, the moments they came from, they're both laborious. You're talking about that tension over black music, which is an interesting thing. You know, the the Beatles took their sound from the black music they loved, Little Richard or Chuck Berry or whoever. And now what happens if you slap that back over the, you know, their modern descendants? Yeah. Um, their hip-hop descendants. It's also a time when, you know, you think about the White Album coming out right around the time that that Apple, you know, the Beatles are becoming Jay Z style entrepreneurs. Yeah, you know, they're starting Apple Records. They're putting out their own artists and and hoodies. You know, at the same, you know, exactly the same way a modern rap mogul like Jay Z was when the Black Album came out. 
I mean, Revolution Number no. 9 is basically sampling. They're just sampling their own sounds. That's the other thing. It's the, it's the first Beatles record that's kind of about the Beatles mm-hmm. in the same way that hip-hop is often about itself and its... Right, their songs are about their own... Glass Onion? Selves, yeah. With its jokes about, hey, we brought you Fool on the Hill and Strawberry Fields and I Am the Walrus. I mean... Ballad of John and Yoko. Yeah, I mean, today that's very much something a a hip-hop artist would do is like, well, you've heard my... You've heard about my thug life on these tracks and I also had a hit with, you know, maybe it's your hype man saying it, but... So there's these interesting juxtapositions that come when when you know both artists. Um... And the you know the black album is you know it's a little less of a you know the the method the misogyny and the the gun play and the other kind of stereotypical stereotypical signifiers of gangster rap have been dialed down a bit you know Jay Z still tells us about his origin story but it's almost kind of an inspiring rags to riches thing it's like mm-hmm. sure I was. You know, my dad walked out, and soon I was slinging dope. But you know, but I've overcome through my. And he still, it's still boasting. You know, it's still kind of the bravado of the boast tracks. It's still I'm the greatest. Yeah. Can I get a what what? Yeah. Um, H to the O V. But he's also. It's also kind of empowering. It's also like, and you can do this. You know, he's also right. some kind of. You know, he's he's turned into a mythical figure, as much as anybody in hip hop ever was. He started so, to foreground. Women instead of, I mean, you know, depending. Where did you get that copy of 33 and a third? It's the Grey Album one. Oh, wow. I was like, whoa. It's, don't worry, it's not ZZ Top. Uh, it, this does one, it even refer to ZZ Top? The Charles Fairchild 33 and a third on this actually breaks down, you know, which parts of which White Album tracks are sampled um, and, and how the loops work. Mm-hmm. Really? No. I could, I could look at this all day. Um, and you, you know, the folk rock and there's, you know, I think he's intentionally choosing weird tensions, you know, the folk yeah. rock of mother nature, or Ju- the, I guess the best one is Julia mm-hmm. kind of the, yeah, the bittersweet kind of, um, mopey Julia under dirt off your shoulder, you know, the, the, not as aggressive as 99 problems, but one of the real kind of boast tracks on the record. Yeah. And that, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a thing where if you're listening to it on headphones, this is an example of one of those, like, if you're listening to it on headphones in your room, it's extremely different than listening to it in your headphones on the J train. <laughs> because the background, any kind of background sound is going to really get in between you. It's a headphones record, yeah. right? If you try and listen to it on your phone and put your phone down on the table and listen to it coming through that tinny little speaker, it, all you're going to hear is just treble clash. As you can imagine, critics went nuts. Oh, middle-aged, middle-aged rock critics could not stop themselves from saying what an amazing, brave, innovative thing this was. Because, you know, they all have these deep associations with the Beatles. It's really speaking to them. But also, it allows them to show that they're keeping up with hip-hop and sampling and remixing. I hate middle-aged rock um, critics. Early February, just a few weeks after it came out, there was a piece about it in the New Yorker, mm-hmm. which is where I get all my. I don't know about you, that's where I get all my um, news about underground mm-hmm. um, DJs and and uh, and hip hop artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in the top ten on the Village Voice Paz and Jop uh, poll that year. Um, he only pressed. He burned like three thousand copies of it. 
oh. on CDs. And he was never going to sell it. He was, he was, you know, he was giving it to friends privately, and um, it was never supposed to be in stores. But of course, immediately once the media starts writing about it, and it's also an irresistible hook for somebody writing the story. There's a white album. There's a black album. But ha uh, Wait for it. What if you combined them? What if it was you? You call it the gray album, right? Well, that's just what I don't know. He's he he spells it E Y. I guess as a relic of his two or three years in London, he spells it the British way. So, I mean, um, I should say, this came out in 2004. This was right in the middle of my indie rock career. So, Pretend to Fall came out in the middle of 2003, and then 2004. Those two records duking it out in the... That's right, duking spin, it out the in the spin, charts. The spin best, uh, best records of the year. This poll. was right about the time I was, I was working on our EP. You know, like, I, this was when I was reading New York Music Critics... With such devotion and, <laughs> you know, and just trying to figure out, like, uh, what the culture wants. You remember this whole media circus. Absolutely. I remember it in think, advance of it even, you know, like, you're not going to guess what's happening. I think, like, I didn't, it filtered down to Entertainment Weekly before I saw that this existed. No, because this was when I was pouring over those, yeah. looking for any reference to my friends, looking for, you know, heaven sent any reference to my band. And, uh, and then this comes out where it's, and I, you know, this was so far in a different world from me. I didn't have any feeling of competitiveness with it. It was just like, oh, this is everywhere now. Yeah. And this is, this is what we're, you have these cultural shift moments where it's like, nope, everything that was before this was before it. And now what if the best record of the year was a remix? Yeah. Right. Did I just blow your mind? Immediately, it's, you know, as a result of all this critical fawning, it's just getting bootlegged everywhere. And it's a, li- it's a limited item, so it's being sold on eBay. But stores do start selling it without permission. Um, you know, in hindsight, both, you know, Jay-Z and Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr have both said, you know, how much they like it and they appreciate it. And, and they, they did it at the time? I, I can't find them saying it at the time. And, you know, it's important because, you know, obviously he's just a, kid in an apartment in LA with a new record deal. He was not going to go Oli- against BMI. O- o- Olivia Harrison, Yoko Ono, Paul and Ringo to be like, and it's funny because it's the Beatles. It's a thing that even Hollywood movies can't get, can't clear permissions for, you know, it's famously the hardest permissions and the most expensive music rights out there. And George and he just, tackles just recently it with his, died. Yeah. Uh, 2002, I think concert for George. You can, you, you can, you just know that George would have been all about it, right? Absolutely. George would have loved it. But it doesn't matter what Paul and Ringo think. It matters what EMI thinks. EMI. EMI controls their publishing rights. And within days, he has a cease and desist letter. It's not just him. They start sending it out to everybody, to every eBay seller, to every record store that they hear is selling it. Whoa. And he, you know, he replies. He's like, hey, I'm, I mean, on some level, this is very good for him, but it's got to be terrifying, too. Um, cause suddenly he's in the middle of this firestorm and he tells EMI, are you kidding? This is just an art project. I never wanted this to be sold. And this makes the papers that EMI has come after this kid. And suddenly, I don't know if they knew this was going to happen and that's just not how lawyers think, but this becomes a Holy grail and, uh, mm-hmm. and, a uh, a, a, a cause celebra. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, f- there's a big, there's a huge digital, there's a huge um, clash at the time between 
the music should be free people. In fact, the everything should be free people and the we own the rights people. And it becomes manifested in this particular cause. I hated all of them. <laughs> all of them. I remember just getting very into these discussions about which lines of, of Linux were in which implementations of Unix. Or uh, which, <laughs> yeah, which lines of Unix are in which implementations of Linux. And you would not imagine <laughs> That's the, one part of the discussion I wasn't involved the in. The nerds being so angry about, because there were court cases going on where people were trying to, you know, close the door on this open source stuff after the horse had left. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the artwork for the gray album was not, it was just a gray cover like the Beatles, Yeah. but there was a famous artwork, uh, by Justin Hampton, who was a poster artist from Seattle. He used to work at the rocket. I don't know if I've seen it. What's the, it just looked, you know, you, you've, you've seen the Justin Hampton poster for, uh, the Nick, uh, Nick cave concert in Seattle that everybody has. It's just Jay-Z in front of the Beatles as done by Justin Hampton with his elongated face style. Oh, I have seen this. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one you always see. Oh, I didn't know that was him. Yeah, same guy. It just looks like proto-gorillas. It looks like um, Brendan McCarthy or whatever that guy's name is. Well, yeah, and and isn't Danger Mouse in the... Or didn't he do a gorillas record, too? He I did a famous he, he gorillas produced record. A, yeah, that's what's... This is how the story's going to end. Oh. So on February 24th, 2004, um, all over the World Wide Web... Uh, everybody announces it's Gray Tuesday. This is when you're going to post your... We're going to put up MP3s of the Gray album, and EMI is not going to be able to shut us down. They can't all get to us. Yeah. If we're gonna, we're, we're, we the people are united. And so when Danger Mouse goes back to EMI and says, are you kidding? This is just a art project. I'm an artist. Uh, this, is my little, this is my little performance art piece. Uh, I'm not profiting off this. They say, okay. All you have to do is repudiate all these, all the activism that's going on around this, and you'll be off the hook. Otherwise, we're going to fine you $150,000. Do you have that? Or, you know, we're going to take you to court, and that's going to be the fine or the settlement. And he does not have $150,000, And but he also doesn't want to say, to go to his fan base and say, hey, you guys should stop circulating this. I didn't have clearances for all these Beatles samples. What are you, what are you guys thinking? You know, that's the last thing. He wants to do, and I think he kind of sees that this is the beginning of a beautiful career for him. You know, he has made this, you know how apprentices would make a work that would show all their training, and that's mm-hmm. where our word masterpiece comes from? Like, this is kind of your dissertation? Like, this was it for him. It combined everything he knew about sampling, and uh, it's, you know, technically it's just an a, amazing piece of work and, you know, starts a million conversations. You know, his, his ticket is punched. Finally, what happens is that Damon Albarn of Blur wants Danger Mouse. He hears it and he thinks, this is brilliant. I want Danger Mouse to produce my new uh, collective project, which turns out to be Gorillaz. And EMI, who's going to put it out, says, oh, no, you don't. We're in court action with that guy. And Albarn says, well, what would it take to make that go away? Like, what do I... What? Really? Yeah. Which vice presidents do I have to talk to? What what kind of... uh, you know, what kind of check has to be written to make this not an issue for your legal department? And it all gets solved behind the scenes. Whoa. And uh, Danger Mouse produces the first Gorillaz record. Damon Albarn. And everything is uh, hunky-dory with Woo-hoo. EMI, but nothing actually changes. You know, they've still right. said, this isn't fine. We own every sound the Beatles ever made, and you better not try this again, buddy. Did he profit from the Grey album at all? 
I don't think so. Except you know, except the fact that his whole career. Right. I mean, it jumpstarts everything about the biggest career of any producer in music today, um, essentially. But surely Jay Z also got half of the. He wrote the lyrics, so he he got half the money from the Grey album. I mean, there is no money, really. I mean, it was just spreading for free. Yeah, but publishing. Every time that stuff gets played on anything. But does it get played on anything? Yeah, I guess it, it it's, is, it's it is never... not. I looked. It is not on Spotify today. Oh, interesting. You know, to this day, it's the kind of thing you have to find somebody. You know, Grey Tuesday is still going on somewhere. What, what's that thing? Permanent September? Yeah. You still have to find a site or a service where it's permanent Grey Tuesday and download a copy because that's the only way to get the gray album so it was just a stunt in the end uh you know a creative he didn't mean it as such right he can't foresee what's going to happen right he just thought this is an irresistible creative challenge to try to make a record work under these insane constraints and what a gag what what a gas it would be if it did um i can i can really identify with and admire that um i think about it a lot the the fact that dre walked away from death row uh in order to get away from suge knight <laughs> and you know he had done such brilliant work and was leaving behind such an incredible catalog and not you know essentially surrendering all rights to suge just to get away from him and you would think at that stage having made that many classic albums that you wouldn't you'd never be able to to walk away from it and he just walked because somewhere in his heart, he knew that he had 10 more great records and that it all works out in the wash. You know, and there are so many people that would stand and fight that until, until their lives were ruined. Um, and then there are the geniuses that are just like, oh, yeah, you want another one of those? Be a quitter is what you're saying. Yeah. Quitting is underrated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, get out. Get on. Rise like a phoenix, like Danger Mouse. And that concludes The Gray Album. Entry 550.mt1906. Certificate number 19205 in the Omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. You can find Ken Jennings and John Roderick on the internet, wherever internets are sold. Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication of the era, was the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You can hang out with the Futurelings everywhere that you can find Futurelings, which includes lots of laboratories around the country, uh, any place that's space exploration is discussed new futurelings are being cloned and created every day Mm -hmm. pre-existing consciousness is uploaded into them Mm -hmm. so they think they've already heard many episodes of the podcast that's right uh any library you walk into i bet you there's a futureling putting books away in the stacks uh any modeled railroad store (laughs) you can send us actual mail at p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 what do you got over there? You're opening some mail? <laughs> this was, uh, so uh, recently, uh, last week, uh, we opened a copy of Richard Powers' The Overstory that John sent us because you mentioned it in uh, The Mother Trees mm-hmm. entry. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, sent us a, uh, a copy as a gift saying, with, a, with an Amazon tag saying, message continued on other card. 
Oh, and there is another card. Today we have a second copy of Richard Powers' The Overstory. That came in a separate package. For also from John, he continues the card thus. John's note that he, has, he had not read this because it does not have a murder or heist made my head explode. Oh. Which, saving spoilers, is all I will say. I wonder if it has a murder and a heist. I wonder. Except that given its history, location, and time, you both really should. Well, guess what? Thanks to John, we now have a second copy of Richard Powers. And if he wants to keep talking to us he's going to have to keep sending us copies of the overstory by richard powers with subsequent parts of the uh, message now we got yelled at on uh, the internet by a couple of people that felt like uh, we were too dismissive of woo and uh, that woo and being dismissive of woo just meant that there was no joy in our lives um well it depends i mean do you mean woo pejoratively to mean any kind of non-scientific knowledge no i think we were talking about a very specific kind of but even that modern appropriation of of, uh, of ancient ideas into new age culture. We're just not open, or at least I'm not open, because I because woo is my rush. I wasn't introduced to it as a impressionistic, you didn't impressionable know about, high school. You didn't kid. know about your chakras. I didn't, and so you know, by the time I as a teenage boy, you were only you were obsessed with just one of your chakras. I was listening and to you Pink Floyd, and I did not understand that what I should have been doing was listening to my chakras. John, are you touching your chakras in there? No, mom, no, I'm mom. listening to Pink Floyd. I'm listening to the Moody Blues, a band that no one uh, <laughs> feels cuts the mustard. Here is a also a postcard of the Lady Washington, the replica tall ship that you can now find in Aberdeen, Washington. That, this is the one that couldn't that they had to uh, they had to get get her out before they completed the Aurora Bridge, right? Isn't oh, is that, that the right? same one? I think so. Is that right? I mean, this is uh, did they, were they building it that? Oh yeah, I've seen that video. Yeah, they move it out at the last possible minute before the center of the bridge goes. Yeah, in. they've completed the whole bridge, and they were like, "Hey, wait, we got to get this boat out of here." Uh, he rec- whoever this is, it, it just says X Kitsap is the signature. Thank you, X Kitsap. He recommends uh, visiting the Grays Harbor Historical Seaport Authority for a nice family outing and also black sheep hat works which builds custom hats in downtown bremerton hmm. do you build a hat does one build a hat oh yeah you don't you don't sew or no. uh, block or no. uh you build it you build it you build it from the ground up the the foundation is the brim hmm. the little top of the beanie would be or the pom-pom would be the penthouse of the you hat put a little pine tree on the top of it when you're finished <laughs> Uh, I can recommend Grays Harbor. It's an interesting little town. Uh, you wouldn't expect it. You want you want Aberdeen to be interesting, but it's not. But Grays Harbor, you're not ready for how interesting it is. Well, if Aberdeen had been interesting, we would not have had grunge. So post-punk music would have suffered. Right. Or at least it all would have sounded like Led Zeppelin. It just would have been all Soundgarden. Grays Harbor is full of pirates. Like real pirates or internet no, pirates? No, no, real pirates. They're pirating music? No, they're... they're uh, they're conquering ships and hiding treasure on the beach. I thought in our part of the world, the only people wearing eye patches were uh, glass artists. <laughs> but no, talk about a pirate. And on that note, please, uh, if you can, give generously to our form of piracy—the piracy of asking for your support. How is that piracy? And accepting again? Pi- accepting your support. Which uh, some of us desperately need to counter all the many lawsuits, the many legal actions in which we are involved. Uh, that is, that you would find that at Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project. Uh, you can join at any one of the numerous levels and reap the uncountable rewards. 
Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.